and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel, and thanks for listening. Today, we're going to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And we'll talk about some of the nuances of women's suffrage, and including why many industries were against it, and how the 1918 flu pandemic nearly derailed its success, but ultimately may have helped as organizers had to adapt their tactics. And speaking of the 1918 pandemic, we're also going to delve into the history of some of the key products of our times, masks, hand sanitizer, wipes, and of course, paper towels and toilet paper to understand where do these products come from anyway. But first, let's start with diving in on the 19th Amendment, which went into effect 100 years ago this month. And joining me on uh, the pod is my colleague, Eden Sloan, one of our associate curators who creates content for our clients and helps out on the podcast from time to time. So welcome, Eden. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Of course. And uh, I know when uh, we had talked a, a couple of weeks ago about having this uh, as a topic for this podcast, you uh, were especially excited given some of your past work on this topic. Yeah, I think I emailed you. Uh, you've hit upon my favorite era of history, so I'm really excited to talk about suffrage today. Awesome. And I guess one one of the first things to just clarify for our listeners that um, that I think is is, is perhaps um, not fully understood is that um, there were, in fact, women who could vote uh, before the 19th Amendment was passed, um, but there were also essentially women afterwards who, who were still not able to vote. So um, how, did, how did that come about? Sure. So first, for some women who could vote before the 19th Amendment was passed, um, I know when I first started looking into suffrage, this really surprised me because I think, like you said, the common misconception is that 19th Amendment meant, all right, women can vote now. Um, but actually, there's some states and instances where women were voting before 1920. Um, So a few examples in New Jersey, actually in 1776, so right at the the dawn of the the United States, um, women were voting uh, in the the new state of New Jersey. So according to the National Archives, uh, New Jersey's state constitution, quote, restricted the vote to property owners, but made no mention of sex or race. Later statutes even referred to voters as he or she, end quote. So this is women, um, you know, actually voting at local, state, and national levels. Um, but then in 1807, there were laws passed in New Jersey that only let white taxpaying men um, vote, which obviously excluded women and free black men at the time. Um, and then another example a little bit later in, in history is in 1869, Wyoming, which was then a territory, not a state yet, passed the first law that specifically stated women could vote. And so then when Wyoming became a state uh, about 20 years later, the law still applied. So some women in Wyoming were voting closer to, you know, close to 50 years before the 19th Amendment. And then, um, so that's before the 19th Amendment. And then even after 1920, there were many women who could not cast a ballot. Um, so women of color, for example, poor women, women in U.S. territories like Puerto Rico. So and an example of this or kind of an idea around this is we have the 14th and 15th Amendments that were passed. Um, but 
many black men were still disenfranchised because even though these amendments were supposed to give them voting rights, um, many Southern states passed laws and used strategies to keep them out of the voting booth. So after the 19th Amendment passed, those laws and strategies were now used against black women. So literacy tests, for example, with questions like how many bubbles are in a bar of soap um, or poll taxes in order to vote or even threatening physical violence if if black men and women tried to vote or register to vote. So a passage of a law doesn't always mean immediate equality. Yeah, and the other thing that, that also kind of it was surprising to learn, and we've talked about this, is is the fact that the the there was already enough challenge for for women to uh, to make this progress, and the, the women's movement, of course, uh, uh, and specifically the the struggle uh, for the right to vote was this you know long you know over half a century struggle, um, but indeed there was also a lot of women in the country that were opposed to actually um, allowing women to vote. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so I think the best way to to talk about that is really read directly from the sources, because um, there, there are a lot of reasons why I think women at the time uh, were fighting against their own right to vote. Um, so if we look at, there's this great pamphlet from the 19 teens um, that was distributed by what was called the National Association Opposed to Woman Suffrage. And it was actually founded by a woman. And the pamphlet says here, it gives a few, lists a few reasons. And so I find them very interesting. So I like to look to the primary source for this one. So this pamphlet said a few examples. Um, because 90% of the women either do not want it or do not care because it means competition of women with men instead of cooperation, because 80% of the women eligible to vote are married and can only double or annul their husband's votes, because it can be of no benefit commensurate with the additional expense involved, because in some states, more voting women than voting men will place the government under petticoat rule. So these are just a few uh, examples from that one pamphlet of um, examples of, at least from the National Association opposed to women's suffrage, why they didn't want women to have the right to vote. So it gives you a little bit of an understanding there. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, one, one of the ones there that kind of struck me as interesting, uh, I can't say I necessarily agree with it, but the sort of rationale that by having the right to vote, um, women were actually sort of diminishing their position of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this notion of almost women taking a position in society of being sort of morally superior and, you know, sort of the, the, the protectors of, of the home and, and of the family. And that, you know, this idea of by um, being able to, vote, it somehow creates this kind of um, equal sort of status between men and women and the concern of how that would sort of play out in other realms of of society. I thought that was sort of an interesting interpretation or or rationale 
definitely uh, why women would want to seemingly be against something that's in their self-interest sure and that you see that in the sources sometimes too of you know uh being involved in in politics is it, it's a dirty space it's um it, it will corrupt women if they if they're there and like you were saying too that the women uh the mothers and wives um they wouldn't be able to have the energies sometimes they say to be able to take care of their families and vote so it is a, it is an interesting kind of public versus private sphere issue yeah, and I think I saw some, uh, I think I even saw some examples of, um, which is, you know, again, kind of interesting and ironic, obviously, in the times we live in now, with so much focus on, obviously, you know, uh, gender equality and this kind of, you know, very interpretation that, you know, all genders can do all different things. And there was even this sort of twist of, you know, are we now going to have, you know, men at home with the children? So mm -hmm. they actually positioned it as, you know, if, if we go down this rabbit hole, how it completely sort of, um, you know, undermines or disrupts like all these different roles that we have for, for gender. Yeah. And I think that was one of the, the main uh, points the, that they would use with cartoons. They would show men pushing the, the baby carriages, right, the baby right. strollers going, Oh my gosh, men will have to take care of the kids. And, uh, yeah, definitely different times. Yeah, well, maybe maybe they were right. Maybe that is maybe maybe that is why finally men uh, were able to do that. Who knows? <laughs> the other well, and the other thing, of course, that struck me is is really ironic. And we did a podcast on this um, earlier in the year. Is that 2020, of course, was also um, the hundredth uh, anniversary of the uh, of prohibition, mm -hmm. and uh, which I guess was the 18th Amendment. And, um, and of course, uh, you know, the, the temperance movement, uh, back to kind of our, our, our point about sort of women taking this position as sort of the uh, morally sort of superior forces. Um, as you can imagine, the, the, a lot of industries were, were, were not exactly in, excited about the notion of women having more political uh, power and influence. And certainly the liquor industry was one of the, the strong opposers um, to, to women being able to vote. Um, but what, what's your perspective on kind of other industries in terms of, you know, how they felt about this movement? Yeah, the biggest one I, I see is definitely the liquor industry. Like you mentioned, you have this temperance movement that started before um, or even maybe concurrently people would say. Um, that was dominated by women. Um, and it's often seen as, you know, a maternal in instinct to, to, to prohibit alcohol. Um, and so and it was kind of saving the family in a way uh, from the dangers of alcohol, alcohol. And so, yeah, a lot of brewers, distillers, others in the industry they feared that giving women the right to vote would threaten their business. Um, and that's, you know, not coming out of nowhere. Like we said, there's the temperance movement beforehand, women's Christian temperance union, for example, they supported suffrage, um, not as much because of gender equality ideas, but um, because they, uh, you know, they wanted prohibition to, to pass and they thought that that might be a good way. Um, and then you have um, ideas that, you know, the 
essentially women getting the right to vote would lead to prohibition um, and then also interfere in other business practices and, and regulate working conditions and, and hours. Um, so it's uh, definitely, it was definitely on the liquor industry's mind for sure, which like you said, prohibition was the 18th amendment. So it happened without women getting the right to vote nationally. Yeah. So what's the story of how the amendment actually uh, came to be? Uh, I know we had a happy hour a couple of weeks ago, and I believe your cocktail was inspired by uh, a hotel, I think it was, in, mm-hmm. in Nashville. Um, so I, I remember that being sort of, uh, it sounded like a pretty dramatic story that, I, that, that occurred. Um, how did that play out? Do you remember? Yeah, definitely. So um, I did uh, this drink for our happy hour, for our virtual happy hour was um, from the Hermitage Hotel, which they have this drink called the Carrie, which is named after Carrie Chapman Cat, who was a, a prominent suffragist. And uh, they, I was just searching on the internet for, you know, suffrage cocktails I knew was around the, the centennial. And I wanted to tie that into our historical cocktail category for this virtual happy hour. And uh, it brought me down this rabbit hole of, like you said, a dramatic story that I knew bits and pieces of, but putting it all together was really interesting. Um, So essentially, after obviously a very long fought battle and um, some some failures beforehand, um, it was August 1920, and the U.S. House and Senate had already passed the 19th Amendment, but in order for it to become an amendment, you need uh, states to ratify it. And so at the time, we needed 36 states to ratify the 19th Amendment for it to become law. Um, So it went through a bunch of states. It it was ratified in 35 states. Eight states did not ratify it. And so really the last chance for the 19th Amendment was Tennessee. Um, So the Tennessee legislature needed to vote on whether they're going to ratify it or not. And essentially what happened was as the Tennessee legislator prepared, prepared to vote people on both sides of the fight. So pro anti-suffrage, they swarmed the Hermitage hotel in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where uh, that drink that I mentioned before is being sold right now for all of 2020 on their suffrage cocktail. Quick shout out to them. Um, so if you're in Tennessee, you can go try the carry drink, uh, at their bar, but essentially all these people swarm the Hermitage hotel in Nashville to be close to the Capitol building and to continue those last ditch lobbying efforts. Um, for example, Carrie Chapman cat, who I mentioned before, she was the national American woman suffrage association president, and she rented a suite in, in the hotel. Um, and then some anti-suffragists even turned their suite into a quasi speakeasy. Uh, they're applying legislator, legislatures with free alcohol, prohibition, smobition there. And yeah, really, yeah. And, sounds and, unprecedented. <laughs> so yeah, they're getting free alcohol and free anti-suffrage arguments. And uh, a quote directly from the National Park Service here, um, which I think really sums up those, those final hours pretty well. They say, as the vote drew closer, the Hermitage Hotel lobby grew more and more tense. Shouting matches and even fistfights broke out. There were reports of special interests on both sides bribing legislators. Carrie Chapman Cat was pretty sure her phone was being tapped 
and other suffragists kept catching strange men hanging out around the rooms trying to eavesdrop. So this was, you know, this hotel was happening with a lot of different things going on. Um, And so then the Tennessee Senate voted for suffrage uh, and then ratification of the amendment came down to one vote in the House. So this is, you know, fourth quarter, final seconds, Hail Mary situation coming here. And a 24-year-old representative, Harry Byrne, um, he was previously opposed to suffrage. He actually voted for suffrage. And as the legend goes, Byrne had read a letter from his mother before the vote, which said, among other things, don't forget to be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat. And he did just that. And he voted for wow. suffrage. And the rest is history, as they say. So it's a wow. that final Tennessee smackdown, if you will, is a, is a really important one in, in the history of ratifying the 19th amendment. That's a, it's like you said, a very dramatic story. Yeah. And the the other, um, when we were prepping for this, the other fun fact I discovered about Carrie Chapman cat was that she was actually a survivor of the 1918 pandemic of the flu. And, um, and, and, you know, we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes as we talk about the products of our times. But um, one of the things I've just been sort of fascinated by is <laughs> seemingly how we haven't progressed as much over the last 100 years as we, we perhaps thought. Um, you know, while, while they didn't use the term uh, social distancing 100 years ago, they did understand the concept of, of public policy, of health, of um, of masks and of social distancing. And one of the things I think we learned was that, um, was that the, uh, flu pandemic, uh, again, sort of, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes as we say, um, <laughs> that, um, back in, I guess, 1917, 1918 timeframe, um, the, the Spanish flu, as it was called really almost upended, um, the ability to get, uh, the 19th amendment made into law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a lot of interesting parallels of, especially going once again to drama and huge moments in history. I mean, you have, you're in the middle of World War One. you have Spanish flu, you're trying to get women's right to vote, you have prohibition, so many key things happening at, at one time, so many significant things. But yeah, for Carrie Chapman Cat, I believe uh, a lot of sources say that she was essentially chained to her bed by the Spanish flu. Cause, and I think what they're trying to say there is that she really wanted to be out there leading and and trying to get the the right to vote passed, but Spanish flu had her incapacitated for a little while. So definitely parallels between 1918 and 2020. I think it's unfortunate right now that at, at a time when we're celebrating, commemorating the hundred years of, of suffrage, um, we're unfortunately not, able to go to a lot of events or exhibits about it, but um, definitely encourage everyone to take a look at the online exhibits that are out there. Um, I know a lot of DC museums have created exhibits and they've put a lot of material on online. So definitely get out to those virtual events as much as you can. Yeah. The the other thing um, actually that, that occurs to me that I also read about the influence of the pandemic in 1918 on ultimately the success of uh, the 19th Amendment was the role of nurses. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a podcast earlier uh, this year on uh, nurses in celebration of the year of the nurse. And, um, and the, 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 the reputation of nursing was so elevated by World War One, and then uh, by the pandemic, that it really sort of elevated this role of women. Um, and of course, we, we always think of uh, World War II as kind of the, the historic time when women, you know, stepped into um, into uh, industry uh, jobs. Um, but that also happened during World War One as well. And so to your, to your point, there was this kind of confluence of events that also helped raise the, um, the issue of women's rights um, because of obviously the, the work that women were doing on the front lines of both the war um, and the pandemic. Um, so that's a great um, segue um, to something that would be, we thought was kind of interesting was to sort of look back at the history of some of these products that um, at least for me uh, were products that <laughs> were part of my daily life before March. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some of these have, have been around um, far longer than perhaps we we knew. and um, and indeed were even recognized for their their health uh, value. Um, and so uh, one of the, the first we thought would be kind of fun would be to sort of you know track track the broad history of, of masks. Um, what did you dig up there? Yeah, there was a I found this great clip from a medical historian talking about um, kind of masks of, of the past, because obviously, as we know, pandemics are nothing new. Um, so this medical historian, his name's Mark Honingsbaum, and he was saying that the first known medical use of masks was in the Middle Ages with the bubonic plague. And so those were the, the masks that I, I don't know if you if you've seen these these images, but they're. Um, the beaked physician or the yeah. plague doctors they're known sometimes, which I think would make a very, very scary Halloween costume. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's, gonna, that's going to be very popular for, uh, for Halloween zoom parties this year, I would guess. I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, but these masks essentially were used. They had lavender in the beak part of it and it was meant to block bad odors, kind of be a barrier that they thought might, um, help spread the disease. They didn't, it wasn't quite proven yet or known yet that uh, disease was transmitted through the air or or respiratory respiratory droplets. Um, Actually the bubonic plague was, was carried by rats and fleas. So it didn't probably didn't help that much, but um, that was kind of the first known medical use of masks. And then in 1910, he cites the great Manchurian plague, which I had never heard of before. Um, apparently it was in China in the winter of 1910 into 1911. And, um, there was, that, that was actually the China virus, but anyway, yeah, there's, yeah, we, we need to work on, on the names of, of viruses. I think, uh, you know, Spanish flu is a misnomer and yeah. Yeah. Um, it, this was where the disease could, the idea that the disease could spread through the air was proven because there's this doctor named, uh, Dr. Wu Liente, and he saw that people were were getting sick so quickly that it was it was transmitting between people so quickly, and so he thought maybe it's it's passed through respiratory droplets, not the fleas that we we know of. 
So he wore a mask and, you know, it's the white kind of gauze mask that he's pictured in. And, and he didn't get sick while his non mask wearing colleagues did. And so it was an interesting, uh, going back to 1910. And then you have the 1918 Spanish flu just eight years later, um, masks were actually required in some places. Like in San Francisco, you get fined if a police officer caught you without a mask on. So um, I thought that that was some interesting kind of first looks on masks. And obviously masks are much more common day-to-day wear um, in, in other parts of the world, like China, other parts of Asia. Um, but it's definitely not as common in the United States as we, we know um, until now, I would say. So it was an interesting history into the, the rise of the mask, I would say. Yeah. And um, I would assume that, uh, I, I would assume that uh, uh, wipes don't go quite as far back as <laughs> masks. Um, no. But when we think about, and of course, wipes have been very hard to come by uh, when the sort of early news of, of the pandemic was starting back in, I guess, early March. Um, my mother somehow, I guess I shouldn't be outing my mom on this, but she she basically did some hoarding of wipes. And so we've, we had a large, a pretty large uh, collection of wipes that we've, um, that we've had. And I think they're Clorox wipes. But when we think about wipes, Clorox and Lysol are, are certainly two of the, the dominant brands in that space. Um, but their history goes back pretty far as well, as I recall. I know I remember Clorox had a centennial maybe 10 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will just say, too, that I definitely seen a shortage in, in wipes, whether it's Lysol or Clorox. I know I use their names interchangeably. Um, and they've been kind of, like you said, one of the biggest uh, holy grails of, of the pandemic. Um, but yeah, Clorox came around in 1913, according to their company history, um, which I was, I was surprised by. I, I, I don't know why I would have thought it would have been even later, actually. Um, and then Lysol really goes back all the way to the 1890s, which is really far back in my mind. Um, mm. But, you know, talking about Clorox specifically, they did a really cool um, interview with their chief innovation officer, Denise Garner, and that they put up around February, which was before the uh, pandemic really kind of slowed down the United States. But um, they interviewed her and really gave her credit with leading the team that created the Clorox disinfecting wipe. And she was saying that um, they were coming up with the wipe based on feedback from another product that they had, the Clorox cleanup cleaner. And they were saying that people were complaining about this, the, the splashback on their clothes and saying that, you know, you'd have to put on these battle fatigues just to go clean, um, which is really making cleaning an event versus something you can kind of just do wipe, think about Clorox wipes today. You can just wipe down the counter really fast. And so they were coming up with some ideas and she said that this idea of the white came up and they really did a focus on disinfecting rather than its cleaning ability. Um, so it was interesting. And they, they, she talked about, you know, how there was fights for it within the company of, we want to put it in a canister, but before we always did flat packages for wipes and 
Um, there was so much demand early on that we had to limit the quantity that they could sell to people. So definitely an interesting history there that um, goes back, I would say, I think it started in 2000, if I remember correctly. So 20 wow. years of, of the Clorox white. Wow. And what about Lysol? What's, how did they get into that game? Sure. Yeah. So the, some of the research I did on Lysol, like I said, I was really surprised that went all the way back to the 1890s. Um, the, the branded name Lysol does. And they started um, with medical antisepsis or essentially sanitizing medical equipment. Um, but from what I was reading, it was a lot more concentrated back then. Um, it, was, it was very dangerous if you ingested it or, you know, it, it would irritate your skin really bad. I think they sold it with a skull and crossbones icon on the, on the packaging. Um, but what I found most interesting was in the 19 teens, um, Lysol, the company that owned it, wa- uh, was advertising it for feminine hygiene. And it, Lysol was also used as a contraceptive. And so perhaps needless to say now, it was not effective. Um, and in fact, then it was really dangerous and in some cases deadly. So um, Lysol is definitely less concentrated, I would say, today. Um, and we have Lysol wipes that uh, are not as dangerous. So in some respects, Lysol was like the Coca-Cola of cleaning products. It followed a a similar trajectory from its beginning in the 1890s. Yeah, and there's a, I think Coca-Cola is a a good way to to compare it, uh, definitely. Yeah. Now, does hand sanitizer go that far back as well? I would think hand hand sanitizer strikes me as something that would be more of a a post-World War II kind of creation. Yeah, there's um from you know from from the research it looks like there's a debate over actually who invented um, hand sanitizer. There's this uh, Vanity Fair did a, a spread on the history of Purell in March of this year, and they were saying they did a, a kind of a story on the uh, husband and wife team that created Gojo, which is uh, who copyrighted the name. Purell, the, the company that, that copyrighted the name Purell in 1998. And so they were doing some development of hand cleaners um, that wasn't, it, I think it was in 1946. They, it wasn't cleaning. It was not sanitizing, I should say, but it was a hand cleaner. Um, and so they, and the uh, Jerry Lippman, who's part of the husband and wife team, he patented a few dispensers and so there's some history there um, until Purell in 1998. But there's also this story making the rounds about a nursing student in 1966 creating um, the first disinfecting solution in gel form. And uh, her name was Lupe Hernandez. And there's a story that comes from the Gar- this Guardian article from 2012, but um, no one can really confirm it from what I've seen. There's this historian at the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. And she did some digging and couldn't find any sources proving that Lupe Hernandez Hernandez did this. And she couldn't even confirm the person's gender because some reports call Lupe a man, woman. So maybe this mystery will be solved with uh, some renewed interest in the subject and a lot of time on our hands now with COVID. Yeah. 
And it's interesting. One thing I've noticed with the hand sanitizers is that you know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, spirits distillers have shifted to manufacturing hand sanitizer, and you can smell what mm-hmm. product has come out of a uh, like a liquor distillery. So, mm-hmm. um, not that I rec- recommend you know snorting smell a hand sanitizer or anything like that. So, um, cool. And um, another thing, as we were doing research on this, that I was somewhat surprised to learn um, is that in some respects, the history of toilet paper and paper towels goes back further than you might expect. Um, But I was also reminded that um, not all parts of the world are as obsessive about toilet paper or paper towels as we are. Uh, here in here in the states, definitely. I think some some parts of the world would probably be perplexed about our run on stores for for toilet paper. Um, yeah, according to to National Geographic, there's record of some type of of toilet paper going back all the way to the second century uh, CE with uh, Emperor Wu Di in in China. Um, so that that would be hemp paper that they found in in the emperor's tomb, and then there's also reference to toilet paper according to National Geographic in a Chinese scholar's work from the sixth century A.D. So um, that's pretty far back. Uh, <laughs> I don't say so myself. And there are also some rice-based paper uh, by 1393 that they point out that was made for the imperial family. So definitely some some far-reaching history there and uh i I didn't expect it to be that far when did kind of the our our modern interpretation of of toilet paper kind of of come come to light i mean was it always packaged on on rolls no so if we look at the united states um joseph gaetti is usually credited uh for inventing this modern commercial toilet paper and that was in the u.s in 1857 and his, I believe, came kind of in little sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, and the Hagley Library did a really cool post on this in 2015. And I think this was the, the time where people were arguing about the proper way to put a toilet paper roll on the, on the tube. You know, should it be over, oh, yeah. should it be under? So I think this post was in reference, it, it was in reference to this debate that I think swept Twitter for, you know, at least a news cycle. Yeah. And so in the post there, I think I, I think I go over. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Yeah. 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 And I mean, uh, I that, that's the civilized way to do it. I mean, come on. <laughs> We're going to get some, some hate mail now about, uh, it's always under. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah, this Hagley library post, they did a fun, you know, they showed these various patents for toilet paper over the years and, um, their improvements and catalogs, advertising, toilet paper. Um, so they mention the 1857 Gaetti patent and then Seth Wheeler, um, who I'm assuming is an inventor or just really interested in toilet paper. Um, he had, I think three patents at least for toilet paper and its improvement. And so he, uh, in 1871 patented the idea for the perforated toilet paper. And then 12 years later, he patented the idea of having the toilet paper roll on a tube. And then his next patent in 1891 shows the toilet paper in the over position. 
So that's kind of where the Seth Wheeler, it seems like, is where the role idea comes in and then the overposition. So I would argue you and I are right. It is the overposition and I'll, I'll fight. I'll fight to the death for it. Yeah. Well, I, it, it strikes me though, that it, first of all, it, it clearly was an invention that had staying power um, mm-hmm. since here we are 125 plus years later or whatever it is. And we're still using that technology. Um, but it seems like we're maybe we're due for like a new revolutionary innovation in the TP space. Maybe uh, maybe Kimberly Clark or Procter Gamble needs to get on like some sort of way that we can just we don't have to worry about the toilet paper getting all tangled up. We can use an app and it's remote control from your phone and it just comes down. Like I, I think an app powered TP roll. I, th- I think I think we're ready for it. You need a patent it, Jason and. You'll be in the the history of toilet paper. Someone will do go. a podcast on you one day. Yeah, there was um, I think there was a I remember hearing about the days being sold out online. Um, which, you know, because of the shortage of toilet paper during the COVID pandemic, people were saying, okay, maybe we should try a bidet, which is more common in other parts of the world. So maybe the bidet will will take over the United States. You never know. Could be. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for giving us that quick drive through through the products of our times. Uh, any other fun tidbits you want to share before we sign off? I don't think so. Just uh, everybody stay safe and stay healthy. And don't hoard the toilet paper. Don't hoard the toilet paper. Yeah. All right. All right, everyone. Well, that's our uh, that's our show this week. Thank you, Eden, for joining us and helping out with some fun uh, tidbits. And uh, everyone stay safe and be well. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye.